righty. It's good to see all of you. I guess we should start. I got quarter past. You guys are here, so let's do it. We, we've got an exciting time in front of us today. I don't know how we're going to get through it all. I actually have taught three separate classes on the t- three topics assigned to me. Biblical meditation, scripture memorization, and scripture application. So I went into my archive of teaching, and I brought out something like 12 to 15 page outlines for each of these topics. Conflated them into one huge gargantuan document, 46 pages, and then whittled it down until I got sick of whittling. So you guys have the, the reduced thing here. There's no way we're getting through all of this. So I commend it to you as a resource. Let's put it that way, and I'll just try to manage our time. But it's an exciting uh, subject. So let's open in prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started. So Lord, thank you for this, uh, this day, this opportunity that we have to gather as children of God and to be with one another. I thank you for these brothers and sisters that are here to study your word. Pray that you would help us, uh, Lord, to make the most of the time we have together and uh, that you would be with me in particular. Help me to say only those things that are helpful for building up and uh, those things that are true and beneficial based on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to talk about cultivating biblical meditation and prayer. Um, prayer is another topic that I know they're going to cover more. So I'm just saying meditation that leads to prayer. That's my, my thought there. And then scripture memorization and then application. These are the three things in front of us. So this class is on spiritual disciplines. And disciplines are just uh, patterns of behavior, uh, things that we do. Like it says in, in 1 Timothy, discipline yourself for godliness. So uh, it's a repeated pattern, just things, patterns you get into, practice you get into that help you grow. Um, it's just a part of understanding salvation coming to us in stages that we have justification, sanctification, glorification. And justification is by faith alone, apart from works, forgiveness of sins, uh, instantaneous for all eternity, that we are seen to be righteous in Christ. But that leads immediately to sanctification. Sanctification is a mysterious uh, joint effort between us and the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit leads, we follow. As we follow, we grow. Some people follow more faithfully than others and grow more than others, uh, etc. And uh, spiritual disciplines are part of that sanctification process. That's what we're looking at here. So we're going to talk about biblical meditation. Before I go in, let me ask a question of you guys. Um, when you think of meditation, what comes into your mind? What does that word mean to you? Okay, so that's a very good answer. Is that all you think about? Do you have any negative connotations of meditation? So what do you think? When you think about meditation, what comes into your mind? Okay. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, but um, it seems like the Eastern mystical meditation uh, has as a goal emptying, emptiness. And it seems like biblical meditation has fullness as a goal. So any other thoughts on meditation? Either way, either biblical or any, when you think of meditation. Okay, yeah. And I think it's just beneficial for us uh, in the positive sense that Alex was talking about, biblical meditation, to stop and ponder and to reflect on Scripture, and so that's what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to start by talking about uh, the idea, the concept would be, that in your quiet time, in your Bible study time, you would have an encounter with the living God. That's something that I think about often. I think about it in terms of my preaching. I think if a sermon is really anointed by the Holy Spirit, if the people are spiritually prepared and made ready by the Spirit, that that can happen, that you can actually have a sense that you are having an encounter with the living God over the text. Uh, But you can have that every day uh, in your personal quiet times, and that at least is a goal. Um, A number of years ago, I read one of the most electrifying books I've ever read 
uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's Joy Unspeakable. And Joy Unspeakable, basically his premise is that God has again and again um, kind of re uh, reenacted or recapitulated the day of Pentecost mm -hmm. in the life of the church uh, for the purpose of mission, of evangelism, that he has poured out the Holy Spirit in an, in an awesome and powerful way on individuals and on the church, helping them to be bold in, in witnessing, to, be, to make progress in holiness, and that these encounters are amazing and they're written down. We often call it revival. Uh, he wrongly, I think, calls it the baptism of the Spirit. I think that's not helpful. I'm going to have a whole sermon on that in two weeks, God willing, on the baptism of the Spirit. Um, but that these, in, these encounters with the living God are possible is not only biblical, but it's a, a substantiated in, in uh, church history. Can someone read 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4 for us on the handout? Now, who in the world is Paul talking about there? Who is the man that was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that man's not permitted to tell? Yeah. Well, I think we know absolutely it's Paul because when this little section is over, he said to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. So we have no doubt. Um, but for some reason, he uses this, I know a man language. And it's because the experience was so extraordinary, so astonishing, so amazing. And uh, that he would have this supernatural encounter with the living God uh, changed his life. It was, it was amazing. Now, he needed the thorn in the flesh to keep him, he said, from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. But he's not the only one. The Apostle John had a similar experience where a doorway was open in heaven and he was lifted up in the spirit to see heaven and to see the future and things like that. Now, clearly, John and Paul are apostles. Those are unique roles. And uh, there's no doubt that they would be given unique privileges that we don't necessarily have. However, Again and again throughout church history, brothers and sisters have testified to experiences that they have with God that are so overwhelming and so powerful, so memorable, never repeated again in some cases, that they never had anything like that again, but they totally transformed the way that they live. Thomas Godwin, who was a 17th century Puritan, wrote uh, in general about these kinds of experiences. He said, he describes a man and his little child, his son, walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he is the child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, but, and he is happy in it. There's no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of that child, picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then they, and puts him down again, and they go on walking together. The feeling inside the son before and after is markedly different. And he's saying that God has the power to do that to his, his sons and daughters any time. And what Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says is that you should go after God for this. You should go after him and say, would you please pick me up and hug me and tell me that you love me and give me a sense of that greater than I've ever had before. Now, could you rule such a prayer out as unbiblical? Of course not. Does God want to, I'll go ahead and make this easy for you, does God want to pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit whom he has given? Yes, it's right in the Bible, Romans 5.5. Could you have more of a sense of his love, his fatherly love for you than you have ever had before? Well, can you imagine saying, no, I've reached the limit. There's no, I've, I've peaked out. I've got 100%. No, of course you know you could have more of a sense of God's adoptive love. It, would that be a good thing for you? That God would pour that into your heart and you'd have a greater sense of certainty than you have ever had before that God loves you as your heavenly father, of course. 
Is it worth seeking it? I think so. And that's what uh, Lloyd-Jones would say. And that's now what I'm saying is you should go after that and it should all be based on scripture and prayer. So you read something in scripture and then you reflect it back to God in prayer. You think about it and you take it back to God in prayer. That's what we're talking about. The barrenness of modern life. Never before have Christians had so many distractions from Christ, from his work in us and around us. We are a very distracted people and ingenious individuals are devising new ways that people will be even more distracted 10 years from now than they are now. They're coming up with apps, they're coming up with technologies, they're coming up with other things to fill your mind with all kinds of worldliness and all kinds, I'm not saying it's sin, but just distractions, pulling you away from God. Our affluence, leisure, and astonishing technologies give us more diversions from kingdom business than any other generation in history. Corey Ten Boom said, beware the barrenness of a busy life. Isn't that interesting? She, in the middle of the 20th century, said that. Well, I would say also the barrenness of a shallow life. I don't want us to be shallow in our understanding of the Christian faith. I want us to be deeper, to have uh, a sense of the depth of God's work in us and around us and for us. So we should not desire that, but also the opposite, which is uh, a, a sense of depth, not shallowness, but depth, in which we actually do reflect on God, on His Word, and His work. Oz Guinness on American Preaching, who's talking about preaching, said, Nowhere else in the Western world are the pews so full of people and the sermons so empty of biblical truth. Um, another uh, individual said, um, This is the age of the sermonette, and sermonettes produce Christianettes. So I thought that was interesting. Um, behind a really good, deep, rich, full sermon is meditation. That's really what happens. You take the individual, the pastor, meditates on the text and thinks about it, not in a shallow way, but in a deep way. And that's uh, what we're looking for. And what I want to do is, in my sermon, I don't want to just teach you the text, but I also want to teach you methodology that you can use throughout the week for yourself so that you can feed yourself feed yourself on Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning in a pattern that you've learned from the way I handle scripture, you can do the same for yourself. That's what we're doing now in this BFL class, that you can feed yourself more richly and deeply on the word throughout the week. So we're talking about biblical meditation that leads to prayer. So let's circle around to the non-Christian meditation, Eastern mysticism. A number of years ago, I read a uh, book by a man, uh, Rabi Maharaj. Uh, it was entitled Death of a Guru. Very interesting story. One of the better Christian testimony stories I've ever read. This individual was a Brahmin of the highest caste, and he descended from a generation of Brahmin, uh, generations of Brahmin uh, priests. As a Hindu, he gave himself to mind-emptying meditation, leading to astonishing flights of psychedelic visions and astral projections, but which left him feeling filthy and empty. So you're like, well, does that actually happen? It does. I mean, the human brain has capabilities, and then there's demonic forces that can come on that give supernatural experiences within the mind and heart that are noteworthy and different than other people. But it was evil. It was, uh, it was corrupting, and it, it led to emptiness for himself because that's what he was seeking, in it, and he did feel empty, and he felt dirty. He eventually came to Christ, and he spoke vigorously against this kind of Eastern meditation, this mysticism, and it's mind-emptying meditation. Buddhism does the same thing. The goal of Buddhism is to become a drop in an endless sea, that you actually lose your identity. 
The difference between the Christian vision of heaven and, and that kind of vision is we actually find our identity, that, that we believe in three persons of the Trinity, and they maintain in some mysterious way, separate, if we could use that language, separate identities, Father, Son, and Spirit, but still perfect oneness in the Trinity. Something we'll never fully understand, but that's a pattern of what we will find for ourselves in heaven. You won't lose yourself in heaven. You will find yourself. You'll find who you actually are as a special, unique creation of God, but also perfect oneness with brothers and sisters and with God. So we're not looking for dropping an endless sea. We're not looking for losing, uh, you know, or emptiness. That's a Buddhist meditation. Hindu meditation does the same thing. They rock back and forth and repeat phrases over and over and over in a mind-numbing sort of way uh, in yoga or other things that just, it's not what we're talking about here. And then, you know, there are Western forms of this Eastern meditation that are not overtly religious, but, you know, they're seeking centering and peace and tranquility and all that kind of stuff. But again, through this emptying approach. We are seeking fullness. We're f- I mean, think about basically the biggest meal you've ever had, probably Thanksgiving. Every year I say I'm not going to do that again, you know. But every year my wife and my daughters and I actually included, uh, you make so many dishes and you think you're just having a little of each dish. You ever done this? And then you look at your plate and you're like, I'm going to eat that? I mean, I've never seen a plate like that except a year ago. Anyway, um, but if you could picture feasting, but no guilt, no gluttony, just feasting on spiritual truth, feasting on relationship through the Holy Spirit, that's what we're talking about, fullness. You walk away full, and that's what I think of when I think of meditation. Now, there's a long history of Christian meditation. I could spend a lot of time walking back, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux or other mystics in the, in the medieval Catholic era who actually were meditating on Scripture, spent a lot of time. Unbelievable the num- amount of writing on the Song of Solomon. Um, and you're like, really? It's not a book we spend a lot of time with. Well, that's because you kind of have a literalistic, you know, biblical historical approach, and you know what that book's about, and you're like, okay, we'll save that until the kids are older. Um, but a lot of mystics looked on that as, as having a higher spiritual sense of relationship with God. The intimacy with God. Very interesting. Not advocating that. I'm just saying there's a long history of Christian mysticism and meditation that we could talk about. We don't have time. What we're looking at is scriptural meditation practices right in the Bible that are displayed and commanded in Scripture. Now, scriptural meditation is commanded to Jewish parents. Someone read uh, Deuteronomy 6 for us. All right, that's just, that's parenting 101 for Christians. All right. What it is is, you know, Thomas, what does it mean when it says to you, the underlined portion, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts? Yeah, it needs to be saturated in your mind and your heart. Before you think you can give them to your children, be sure it's in your heart and in your life. But then impress them on your children. Talk about them all the time. That's just, you know, um, Christian parenting. It's really good. Joshua, same thing. Joshua 1, 8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Now, the Hebrew word commanded there to Joshua, meditate, is translated in other places a variety of ways like moan, growl, utter, speak, muse. It's kind of like that's what this person would sound like if you came in the room and they're doing it. Like their eyes are closed. They're like working on something. You know, they're, they're, the wheels are turning and they're, they're talking it over in their own mind just for themselves, etc. Now, I'm not saying you have to do any of these things. Moan, growl, utter. 
uh, all of that. But that's what the word is. And so there's this internal working on what? What does Joshua 1.8 say he should be meditating on? The scripture. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So this is what you're working on. You're, you're meditating on the scripture. All right, same thing in the New Testament. Uh, Timothy, someone read this for us, 2 Timothy 2.7. That's open command to uh, meditation. What he's talking about in context there are different metaphors, the hardworking farmer, the soldier, the athlete. These three, uh, all of them have the same thing, which is uh, a dedication to their task, a focus on their task that produces good results. But the illustrations won't mean anything if Timothy doesn't take the time to reflect on what, he, what he, uh, he is saying. And what is the goal of the reflection? Reflect on what I'm saying. What will happen if you reflect? Understanding. Understanding. Insight. Illumination. What I call the aha moment. There's something you hadn't seen before and then the light turns on. And it's there, but you've just been driving right by it. And so insight, that's what the goal is and, you know, theologians call it illumination. The Holy Spirit works illumination. He brings light to the Word, and then the Word brings light to your life. So you understand what the actual text is saying in ways you hadn't seen it before. That's reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight. Okay? Again, Jesus, after the parable of the seed and the soils, this is really interesting. Luke 8, 18, it says, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. So he's talking about, remember the, the parable of the seed and the soils? The farmer goes out and he scatters uh, seed. The seed is the word. And it falls in different kinds of soil. And I think really good exegesis would say only the fourth soil represents a, a regenerate heart receiving the word. The first three is a failure. All right, so the question is, do you have a receptive heart? Do you have a heart like, that's been plowed and is soft and ready and wet and ready for the seed where it's going to flower and produce crop? Or are you like the first three? That's, and he says, consider carefully how you listen. What happens to you when you hear good sound teaching? Does it produce fruit? And look at what else he says in, in Luke 8, 18. What does he say? He's talking about how you receive the word. Somebody read it for us, Luke 8, 8 18. It's right there. It's really powerful. If you keep it in context, we're talking about the Word, insight in the Word, truth, concepts that come from the Word. If you put into practice what you learn, you'll be given even more and you'll have an abundance. If you do not, even what you think you have will be taken from you, so you'll be in a worse place with the Word 20 years down the line than you were when you started. So in other words, if you develop the habit of hearing and not obeying, it's going to be much worse for you 20 years down the line. Even what you think you have will be taken from you. So that's pretty, a pretty severe warning to be certain that you are not, like James 1 says, an ineffective hearer only of the word, but somebody who actually does it. So that's what Jesus is saying here in Luke 8.18. All right, so one of the best examples you're going to find of scriptural meditation, or meditation based on scripture, is in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is an extended um, meditation uh, on, the, on the combination of the word and prayer. It's what it is. It's a marrying of the word and prayer. Look at uh, the various verses it says about meditation. There's numbers of them. I just chose a few. Psalm 119, verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Psalm 119:97. oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Psalm 119, 148. 
my eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. There's many such verses like this in Psalm 119, a lot on meditation. There's an amazing structure to Psalm 119. It's 176 verses. It's 22 Hebrew letters times eight verses per letter. Uh, the stanzas of eight all begin with the same Hebrew letter. It doesn't, obviously can't come across in the English translation, but what they frequently do is they give you the Hebrew letter that it's meditating on. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, etc. It's got it. Most English readers like, yeah, what? <laughs> I see it there and that's what the Hebrew letter looks like. But they, they don't really know why. It says usually in the footnote why every, every uh, stanza uh, f begins with this letter. It's like, remember Mother's Day when you spell out the word mother, you know, M-O-T-H-E-R, that kind of thing. Do you ever do that? Maybe you didn't. I did that. Anyway, um, uh, so it's like that. Aleph, a bunch of things that all begin with the same letter, bait, gimel. So eight verses, 22 letters, 176. And amazingly, all but four of the verses mention in some way the written word of God. So it's 176 verses on the written word of God his law, his precepts, his testimonies, different ways he uses it. And interestingly, all but four verses are directed to God in prayer. They're in the second person, you this, you that, etc. Every verse, God, uh, the psalmist is addressing God. So there you have that beautiful marrying of the word and prayer together. Um, it's quite remarkable. Now you're all excited to find which four don't mention the word and which four aren't in prayer. Go for it, but do it later. I mean, um, the perfect illustration, though, of quiet time conversation. God speaks to you through his word, and then you speak back to God through prayer. It's a beautiful conversation. That's a good quiet time. Power of meditation on the word is reflected back to God in prayer, displayed over and over again. So here are a couple of cycles, if you could think of a cycle. Like I just kind of mentioned, God speaks to you in prayer, or in the word, you speak back to God in prayer. It's like a cycle. Um, but there's some of those also in Psalm 119. Look at this one. Meditation promotes understanding, and understanding promotes meditation. All right, so first, uh, meditation promotes understanding. That makes sense, doesn't it? The more you meditate, the more you'll understand. Psalm 119.99, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. So in other words, because I have meditated, I have a lot of insights. That just makes perfect sense. The opposite is not so clear until you think about it. Look at verse 27. Understanding leads to deeper meditation. Someone read verse 27 for us. 119 uh, verse 27. That's a little backwards, right? If you would let me understand, then I will meditate. The way I figured that out is it's like if you meditate and get nothing out of it, you'll probably stop doing it. But if you meditate and get a lot out of it, you'll do it even more. So it's like buying a, a business and the business starts producing a profit, you're going to invest more money in it and get even more profit out of it. Whereas if you buy a business and it fails, you wanna cut your losses and get rid of it. Does that make sense? And people actually do that with the word. They haven't worked at it and they think I don't really get anything out of it. But it's because they really aren't doing spirit-led meditation on it and it isn't doing anything for them. So he's praying and notice it's a prayer oh god would you please give me insights then i will meditate more so there's that cycle uh, understanding or meditation produces understanding greater understanding produces more meditation and what's the outcome of all that a well-educated christian a christian who really just knows the word very very well 
and that feeds everything else in the Christian life. All right? There are other um, examples. Uh, understanding promotes obedience, and obedience promotes understanding. Again, you can, un- you can see how understanding would promote obedience. Um, you know, the, uh, the more that you understand, the more you're going to obey. Look at verse 100. Uh, sorry, the more of God's word uh, is written on your hearts, the more obedient. But the, the Psalm 119 verse 100 reverses it as well. Someone read that for us. So in other words, he said, because I obey, I have more understanding. So how does that work? Well, again, all of this comes from God through the Holy Spirit. And the more obedient you are, the more God will give you insights and uh, his treasures. If, on the other hand, you don't obey, he won't give that to you. So, for example, John 14, 21 says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. So, in other words, if it just keep it simple, The one who obeys me will know me better. The one who disobeys me will not know me as well or at all. Does that make sense? So the more we obey, then the more we learn who God is. So if God leads you, like George Mueller, to care for a bunch of orphans at the end of 20, 30, 40 years of that, you'll just know God better. So you were obedient from the outset and did what God told you to do, and then in that process, more and more, you learn who God is. The same is true just of biblical uh, study. All right? Um, so throughout Psalm 119, the role of prayer is emphasized, what I call from the Sermon on the Mount, spiritual begging. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So whatever you see in the scripture that you should have, but you don't have, ask him for it. So the simplest would be um, insight. Psalm 119.18 says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Isn't that great? So that's very similar to Jesus in, in Luke 24. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. So what you do is you, I, I think Psalm 119 verse 18 is a great quiet time prayer. Just, you could write it on your quiet time book. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Give me insight through the, give me illumination. So you're praying for that. You're asking God to open, open your eyes, praying for understanding. There are 15 examples of this in Psalm 119. Then prayer for obedience. All right, Psalm 119.35 says, Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. So would you direct my footsteps along the path of your commands, for I find delight there. So he's asking, oh God, would you make me obedient? (laughs) Please don't let me stray. Please don't let me wander. And, And if you know that about yourself, it's like I have the tendency to stray. Would you please guide my steps along the path of holiness? That's a valid prayer. And 10 times in Psalm 119, we see that. All right. So Psalm 119 may be the best example in all scripture of how to cultivate a close link between meditation on the word of God and prayer. All right. There were so many things I wanted to share with you guys. I gave Wes. Have I given you the full outline yet? Oh, see, I promise you. All right. So tomorrow I'll I'll email it to you, the 42-page version. Um, I'm already behind because I haven't gotten a scripture memory yet. But clearest example and pattern you're going to see in, of an individual doing this is Daniel. Daniel is a great prayer meditation guy. And the clearest example of that is in Daniel chapter 9, where he reads from scripture that the exile will last 70 years. By his counting, it's getting close. I don't know exactly when the beginning or end is, but he feels like the time is getting close for the exile to end. 
They're in, um, you know, to the Persian uh, era, uh, and it's time now uh, for them to go back. And so he takes the word of God and brings it back to God in prayer and confesses sin. So Daniel's meditation and prayer is rooted in specific and relevant texts of Scripture. It's connected with the flow of events in redemptive history. It is carried on by a godly man whose whole life is directed towards serving God. It is humble and brokenhearted. It is saturated with scriptural insights. It pleads the promises of God and humbly asks God to do the very thing God said he would do. So if you want a great example of how to do biblical meditation and prayer, then Daniel 9 is, is an excellent example. All right, let me give you some good reasons why we should meditate. First is the nature of Scripture. We should meditate because of what Scripture is like. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, Scripture is perfect. It's God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. It's literally inexhaustible. It's a holy treasure of wisdom. Secondly, Scripture is infinitely deep in its truths and its interconnections. There is milk and there is meat. Some things are not immediately obvious. There are some things you're going to have to dig for. And so there's some simple things you'll get at first reading, and there's other things you have to slow down and you have to, have to meditate on. And if you don't, you're going to miss things. You will never be done with a passage of Scripture. In other words, saying, I can't learn anything more from this Scripture. There's nothing new. The Bible itself never changes. It's, it's, it's unchanging. And yet, isn't it funny how, how we, we get that image of it being a rock that Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and built his house, and it's like building his house on a rock, not on sand. So the idea is it never moves. It never changes. It's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And yet the Bible is said to be living and active. There's anything about living things is that they are moving to some degree. There's something alive as opposed to a rock. So how can the Bible be a living rock? So that's an example right there of a conundrum that you try to harmonize. The beautiful thing about the Bible is the law of non-contradiction. Every word is from the same infinite mind. So there's no contradictions. Where there are apparent contradictions, you need to get busy. And you need to meditate and think. Let me give you an example. This is, I'm going to risk this. I'm not going to finish. I'm not going to finish, Wes. What am I going to do? But I have to share this one. All right, because we're, we're going, the next book we're going to look at um, in the middle, when we move to More Than a Building, when we break for the first quarter of 2020, we're doing the book of James. Then we'll come back, God willing, to 1 Corinthians. But in James, there's a very interesting statement. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires dragged away and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James. You're like, well, what's the problem? The problem is the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into... What's the conundrum? Why would you pray that God would not do something that he said he will never do? I worked on that for about an hour. <laughs> so this is how I came up with it. The problem is not God. The problem is you. And you don't know how prone to be led into temptation you are. And when you pray all the time, oh God, lead me not into temptation, it's like, oh God, would you orchestrate my life so I realize what kind of unbelievable danger I'm in every moment. 
and would you make me heighten in my awareness of my own corruptions and heighten in my awareness of the evil of the world and Satan's devious temptations and would you make me aware of all that so I can be holy like you are? That's about the best I can do. How's that sound? And you're like, well, I didn't even know there was a problem there. That's my job, to tell you what problems there are. All right? It's like, I didn't even know that was a hard verse. So when you see these things, the nature of Scripture causes you to meditate. It's deeper than you think it is. All right, number two, the nature of our hearts. Our hearts are naturally hard. They are unyielding. They are resistant to the Word of God. Like engraving on a steel wall with a stylus, it takes repetition for us to get it. So you don't get it the first time you hear it. You have to hear it again. All right, we are also very forgetful. We forget God's Word. So part of the ministry of a pastor is just remind you of things you already knew. I'm not trying to get up every week and, and rock, rock the foundation and say things you never heard before. So I'm actually 99% of the stuff you'll hear after you've been hearing good preaching for 10 years, you've already heard. I'm not trying to come up with new innovations, but just remind you of what you already knew. Okay, so we are forgetful and also we are easily distracted. Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So that's, that's true of all of us. It's not just those two individuals. All of us are foolish and slow of heart to believe. And so we need to meditate for that reason. Thirdly, the nature of salvation is discovered. Salvation comes to us in stages. We're not done being saved. We need to keep feeding on God's word. We need to hear him speak. And as it says in Hebrews 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And you hear it by Scripture. You hear it by Scripture. Fourthly, the nature of our changing lives. We're in a different place now than we were 10 years ago. So we're going to hear a specific command or a specific promise or something differently than we heard it 10 years ago. I think this is the essence of how the Word of God is living and active. It's not so much that it changes, but we're in a different place. And we're ready to hear it come at, at us from a little bit different angle now. That's the thing. We're always changing, and so we need to... Uh, meditate. Um, the nature, fifthly, of our techno-crazed world. Uh, I've already, already talked about all the distractions. We're constantly being assaulted by the world, really. Uh, the smartphones bring the world to the doorstep of our brain all the time. What this tends to do is shorten attention span, I've found, so that we actually have ADD tendencies that we didn't maybe have 10 years ago. And so it's harder for us to focus. You know, you look at some of the sermons that were preached, like Jonathan Edwards, and it's like 75, 80-minute sermons with deep reasoning and in-depth applications. Like, did they sit through that? It's like, well, they were New England Puritans. What could they do? There was nothing else to do on a Sunday. But I think they also were able to track and follow better than we, we do. So we need to heal that, and I think meditation can help. And the nature of our spiritual work. Uh, the ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us and we've got good works to do, and we need to get ready. And the way you get ready is by feeding richly on God's Word. So God prepares the task in advance for, uh, for us, and us in advance for the task. All right, so what is the goal of meditation and prayer? Well, insight, scriptural insight, that's what we're looking for. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Some new thing that you've never seen before. And it's so much better if you find it yourself than if the pastor tells you. I'm just telling you, it's so exciting. It's like, yeah, that's mine. I saw that. Nobody told me. Just the Holy Spirit worked at him. It's so cool. Go after the aha moments, the illumination moments. Let, let the Lord work this in you. <clears throat> Psalm 119, verse 130. <clears throat> the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Isn't that beautiful? The unpacking, the unfolding. of It's like a trunk full of gifts and treasures packed up. 
you open it up and start lifting things up and unfolding it. And it's like, wow, there's a lot in here. And it's really awesome. So insight shapes the mind. It's a building block. It's a concept from which the city of truth is erected in your soul brick by brick. This leads to, insight leads to faith. The food of faith is the word of God. The deeper you feed on it, the stronger your faith will be. And your faith needs to be stronger. It's a living thing. It needs food. It can fail. You can stop believing in Jesus if Jesus stops praying for you. And if the Father stops answering Jesus' prayer, that your faith won't fail. You should not think it is impossible for my faith to fail. You should never think that. You should realize that if the Father and the Son and the Spirit don't continue to feed and strengthen and protect your faith, it will most certainly fail. So if it's just you versus the devil and the world in your flesh on the issue of your faith, you will lose. But Jesus will never abandon you. He will keep interceding for you. He is your mediator. He is your high priest. He's praying that your faith won't fail. But how does it not fail? Part of the answer is he feeds you by Scripture. So when I get up to preach in a few minutes, my goal will be your salvation. And that's by feeding you the Word. Feed my sheep. And I'm feeding myself too. But you can feed yourself and should feed yourself throughout the week that your faith will get stronger because you had a good quiet time. And so you're in in the word, all right? So increased faith leads to hotter affections. What that means is that you have a heart more ardent after Christ. You love him more. You love God more with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a good quiet time. God has fed you. He has strengthened you. You've gotten a good meal in the word, and now you love him in a powerful way, in a way that you didn't before. Your affections aren't cold or distant like the church at Ephesus that had forsaken their first love. Instead, your, your uh, affection is kindled by scriptural meditation and prayer. All right, so um, Psalm 119, verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And then uh, verse 104, I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. It's not just love, but it's hate. I don't just love God. I hate what's anti-God. I hate evil. I hate sin. And if you hate it, you'll fight it. And if you fight it, you'll win. You're going to kill it. But you've got, to, you've got to have these ardent affections, passion for God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and a, a passion for holiness. And that uh, results in holy resolutions. You're determined to walk today in holiness. You're determined to do the good works God has prepared for you to do. You're ready for your day. That's a good quiet time. Any questions about biblical meditation? Mem- memorization. What is memorization? Well, memorization is not the same as meditation. You can meditate without memorizing, but I do not believe you can memorize without meditating. If you actually have a passage memorized, you will have meditated on it. It's just going to happen. Because just along the way, you'll be like, wow, I didn't see that before. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. Whatever. It's just going to happen. But you can meditate without memorizing. Okay, what is memorization? Well, you know what it is. It's the ability to recite it word for word and recite it accurately. All right, so I believe, as I've looked at this, there are no verses that directly command memorization. I think there are verses that command meditation, but I don't think there are any that directly command that you should memorize. So I would not say this is a Christian obligation, but I will say it's one of the best things that I've ever done in my life. And I commend it to you. And there are many verses that commend, not command, but commend memorization. There are some verses that seem to imply memorization. 
We've already covered some of them, but maybe you didn't notice that they imply memorization. Let's talk about it. Uh, probably my go-to is John 15, 7, 8. Can someone read that for us? Okay, so how does that commend memorization? Not just meditation, memorization. You're actually remembering. Jesus said, if you remain or abide or dwell or live in me, and what? What's the next part? The next if, 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 and. What's the next part? My words, plural. So now I'm going to get really geeky on you. My nouns, my verbs, my adjectives, my paragraph flow. If those words remain, dwell, live in you. Hmm. Means it sticks with you after you're done. You're, you still know them. I think it just seems to imply memorization. It's a double if. Then comes prayer. If you remain in me, you're just walking in Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and his words remain in you, you remember what he says, then ask whatever you wish, that's prayer, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, and so prove yourself to be my disciples. So fruitfulness comes from this. That's why I like John 15, 7 and 8, because it shows the payoff. The payoff is spiritual fruit that you'll be glad you had on Judgment Day. It's a fruitful life, and this is the way you get it. There's some others. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. This, again, seems to be memorization. For God's word, the word of Christ, to dwell in you and to do it richly. All right, Joshua 1, 8. Do not let this book of the law depart out of your mouth. What does that mean? But meditate on it day and night. All right, well, here's the thing. There are a lot of meditate on it day and night verses in Psalm 119 and other places. Given the fact that this is before the Gutenberg press and certainly before the Internet, um, very, very few people had actual copies of the Torah or of the words of the prophets, right? So the only way you're going to be able to meditate on God's word day and night is if you have it memorized. It's the only way to do it. How else can you meditate on it day and night unless you have access to it? And again, don't let God's word depart out of your mouth. In other words, don't be like a leaky balloon, but let it stay in you. All right, Psalm 119.11 is commonly quoted for memorization. Someone read this for us. So there's a lot of this kind of treasuring up God's word, storing it up type of thing. We'll get to some of that uh, in a moment in, in, in Proverbs. But um, it says in Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? And then verse 11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So having God's word hidden in your heart helps you fight temptation. Think about Jesus out in the desert. I'm just thinking he had it memorized. When Satan came and attacked him and he's answering with scripture and with scripture and with scripture, I'm not thinking he's got the Torah under his arm as he's walking through the desert. I don't think he needed it. He had it in his mind. He was able to say, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus there is not only fighting Satan, but teaching us how to fight him too. And you fight him with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Psalm 119.11 says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I can fight sin, that I won't sin against you. All right, uh, someone read James 1, to 25. Now this is low-hanging fruit on memorization, okay? So Wes, as you read that, do you see any memorizing thing in the underlined verse? Maybe in the, in the not forgetting part, yeah. So what was the opposite of not forgetting? 
remembering. What's another way of saying remembering when it comes to Scripture? Memorizing. So in other words, you read God's Word and you didn't walk away and forget what you read. And one of the ways to do that is by uh, memorizing. All right, and again, Proverbs 7, 1, 1 through 3. There's a number of Proverbs like this, but I chose this one. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. So there's that sense of treasuring up God's word. You're storing it up. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Friends, that's a poetical way of saying memorize it. So these are a number of verses and there are others besides. But again, I don't think there are any direct commands to memorize. I just think it's incredibly useful. All right. Here are some objections that may pop up in your mind um, when you try to memorize. All right. I don't have a good memory. You have a better memory than you think you do. All right. It will take too much time. My answer is, what is time for? We have a limit to it. How should we spend it? Is this a good use of your time? That's the question you have to ask. All right. I'm too busy then you're too busy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say. Life is busy, but we are given 168 hours a week. We have to decide what to do with it. It's a stewardship question. How do you spend it? It's the question we all have to answer. How do we, how about this one? I'm just not very interested. What would you think about that? Uh, like any skill, it takes practice, and the more you do it, the better you get it, as Ron said. I don't think we want to necessarily say that the person's absolutely not interested in God's Word, but to make such a statement is concerning. So I would, if I had time to follow up, tell me more about that. Um, and it could show that worldliness has crept into their life and in their heart, and it needs to be driven out um, by the Word. So there's other um, um, objections. Uh, I tried it before, and it never really worked. Well, it doesn't work. You do. <laughs> okay? There's no... I, I, I've... I've um, written a booklet on this and you can get it for 99 cents on Amazon or for free from me. So just come to me and I'll give it to you. Um, but uh, there's been, uh, it's been downloaded almost 40,000 times now. Um, and there've been, there's almost 400 comments on Amazon. And one of the, I, I like reading the negative comments. And it's like they assumed there would be some memory pill that came with the book in a little Ziploc bag. And then when you take it, it's like, look, it's just hard work. You want to know the secret to memorization? I'll give it to you right now. Repetition over time. There it is. Just keep saying it over and over. And I don't mean for a day or a week or a month. I mean just keep doing it, and you'll get it. But there's no kind of silver bullet. You just work at it. So this person gave me one star and was very angry at me. Um, so I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, just work at it. But I don't answer any of them. All right, benefits uh, of Scripture memorization. Protection from sin and straying after, uh, away from God. A um, deeper understanding of God's Word. Like I said, it's automatic meditation. It'll happen as you memorize. Uh, tools for the Holy Spirit to work growth in you. Instruction in righteousness. Deep conviction of sin. Constant readiness for evangelism. Redeeming the time. Storing up treasure in heaven. Material for deep teaching of the Word of God to others. A rich, deep, heartfelt worship. I mean, it's just good for worship. Uh, in a rich prayer life. It's a blessed bless home life, marriage, parenting. Just the scriptures are going to be there to help you. And ability to bless others through wise counsel. All of these things have come from, into my life through memorization. Now, I make a case in my booklet for why memorizing long chapters and whole books, full chapters and books, is better than memorizing individual verses. But memorizing individual verses is better than not memorizing at all. So if you want to start with John 3.16 or some other verses that are your favorites, do it. But eventually, if you get good at it, I would just advocate take a really rich chapter in an epistle and do the whole chapter. Colossians 3, for example. It'll pay back in full. 
and you just see the logic, the unfolding, and it's really pretty powerful. All right, how do you do it? It's really just you pray, you ask God what book to do, you choose a book. Um, probably, if you're just getting going, don't choose a long book, don't choose a gospel. You know, I think epistles like Philippians is 104 verses. I mean, you could do that easily. If you did a verse a day, it'd be done five months, if not less. It's doable. Many have done it. You just, just work at it. And anyway, there's some other mechanics there. Let's go on with the few minutes we have left and talk about application. Um, putting the truth to work. Now, I'm totally leaning on um, a friend of mine in the Gospel Coalition, a man named Dan Doriani, wrote a book, Putting the Truth to Work. Um, I struggle with applications every week in my sermons. Like, have I done a good job telling people, so what, what do I do? And so you have to kind of figure this out when you're having a quiet time and you're feeding yourself, right? How shall I put this into practice? What should I do about this? And so there's just different um, things um, that we uh, learn about application. Just know, first and foremost, God is speaking to you in the Word. So as you, as you are, it's like you're, ha- you're having an encounter with God, as we began talking about. God, your Heavenly Father, is telling you things that He wants you to know. There's many verses that imply this. I think Hebrews 3 is one of the best. It says, so as the uh, Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. The Spirit says that in Psalm 90, what is it? Um, today if you hear His voice, I think it's Psalm 91. So, you know, he speaks a psalm that David wrote a thousand years before the author of Hebrews wrote what he wrote and, you know, 3,000 years before us. But it says, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So that is Psalm 95. Psalm 95. If you, if you read Psalm 95, It's as though God is saying that to you right now. And what is he saying? Well, among other things, he's saying, if you hear me speaking to you today, don't harden your heart. What that means is put it into practice. So we need to do what he said, all right? Seven sources of biblical application. Um, They're different. This is just genres, all right? So rules, they just tell you what to do and not to do. You're going to see them not just in the law and the Ten Commandments, but you'll see them in the epistles a lot. He's just telling you, certain certain aspects and rules. Um, ideals are principles that guide a wide range of behavior without spe- specifying particular deeds. You know, how do you apply the ideal of honor your father and mother? How does that work? How does it work when you're 15? How does it work when you're 50? Um, so, but that's an ideal, and you want to say, I, I really want to uh, honor my parents. I want to, how do I do that? How do I love my neighbor as myself? So those are ideals. Thirdly, doctrine. These are just genres. <clears throat> Doctrines state the cardinal truths of the faith, the fundamentals of a Christian belief system. Uh, then, as you apply it, there, it's just very practical. If doctrine X is true, what follows? So, for example, <clears throat> at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. All right, well, you just learned something about the resurrection. We're not going to be paired off in the resurrection. So, what are some applications that you could take? Well, how would you apply that? Let's say you are married. How could you apply that to your marriage? Marriage is temporary. Make the most of it would be one, one thing to say. I mean, it's right in most wedding services, till death do you part, that kind of thing. That's got a biblical basis to it. 
in order to encourage my wife in reference to this doctrine, where she said I was going to leave her alone in heaven and be with all of my friends, and she was I mean, like it was some big party and she had no one to talk to. Um, please don't quote her. Then I've said that, haven't I? Um, but anyway, we all think it's like, what's heaven going to be like? What I believe is that Christy and I will have a better relationship in heaven than we do now. Just that the procreation portion is over, there's no need for multiplication, be fruitful and multiply, but our relationship will be infinitely holier and more one. And so whatever oneness we achieve in this life is as nothing compared to the oneness we'll have uh, with each other and with uh, several hundred million of our closest friends. So um, anyway, I don't know if that was comforting, but that's how I applied that. Uh, Here's a trust, number three, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. All right, that's, how do we apply that? Well, recognize the Apostle Paul's writing that, and he says, not just I was the worst, but I am the worst. What it shows is that a, an awareness of sin in my life and the seriousness of that, of that sin is appropriate even for the most mature Christians, and I would say especially for the most mature Christians. So I expect to have a wider sense of my own sinfulness, but along with that, a wider sense of the complete sufficiency of Christ for that sin that both of those things are going to grow in me. So that's how I would apply that. Redemptive acts and narratives. So uh, that's the fourth genre that Doriani talks about here. So the central character in every Bible story is God, and some aspect of his redemptive purpose attaches to the main theme of every narrative. The interpreter should ask, what was God seeking to accomplish here? Focus first on the redeeming work of God and the divine self-revelation embedded in it. Even in human responses, there's a lesson about God and his purpose. So, you know, John Calvin began the Institutes of the Christian Religion saying this, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. I take that to every text. What do I learn about God here? And what do I learn about humanity? What do I learn about the human nature? I think those are just two very good interpretive questions to ask um, all right, fifthly, exemplary acts and narrative, seeking to determine from a narrative accounts, from narrative accounts, proper and improper human responses to the person, commands, and plans of God so that we may be exhorted and warned. So let's learn from the negative examples and positive examples, right? Let's learn from the fact that both Daniel and Mary were called highly esteemed by an angel. And that, that, that's a desirable thing. I would love for angels to say that I am a highly esteemed person. Well, what were Mary and what were Daniel like and how could I imitate that, etc.? There's a yearning to imitate positive examples or to see the kind of courage or boldness that is shown by the apostles in witnessing in the book of Acts. I want to be that bold, filled fill with the Spirit. Or then there's lots of negative examples in the Bible, like how the Jews consistently did not obey or went after idols or different things. Or Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, just hearing and disobeying. Just there's negative examples uh, those are helpful. Images or symbols like the bronze serpent, the tabernacle, Lord's Supper. So just trying to interpret those images and symbols, songs and prayers, learning from the book of Psalms and songs and prayers in the Bible, how to approach God. The book of Psalms teaches us how to pray. If you like, I don't know what to pray for, like Romans 8 says, we don't know what to pray for. I would just commend the book of Psalms and just pick a Psalm and pray it. Like, oh God, why, why do you stand so far off? Why are you so distant from me? It's, it's just helpful to know that God sometimes feels distant. And, and if you feel that way, it's, it's, it's comforting to have a psalm there and then see how the psalmist frequently works through that. And yet I know that you'll you never forsake Israel. You're a faithful God, etc. Just you see how that works. 
Just take Psalms and pray through them. All right, four aspects of application. Um, this is all Dan, Daniel Doriani in his book um, on application. All right, so number one, what should I do? What is my duty? What, what do I need to do as a result of this? Is there some action I need to take, an obligation? Number two, what kind of person should I be? What, is, what, what does this text tell me about my character? All right, how can I be the right person uh, character-wise or heart-wise? Another word for character would be heart. What heart state should I have as a result of this? Thirdly, what should, I, what should my goals be? What should I be navigating toward big picture in my life? What should be some stars that I'm navigating my life by? What should uh, be a goal that I take out of this scripture? An easy one for that is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. What that text is saying is don't be so worried about your body and about your clothing and about your practical things. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek his righteousness. Go after that today. So what should be your goals? And then how can we distinguish truth from error? What, uh, what, is, what are some discerning things that we could do? Discernment. Um, so those are Doriani's four. Let me give you four that are not on your sheet here. Um, in my book on sanctification, Infinite Journey, I break sanctification or spiritual maturity into four categories. Knowledge, faith, character, and action. So it would be similar to Dan Doriani's, but a little different. Knowledge, faith, character, action. So I would bring that over into four verbs, and I do this with all my sermons. Um, is there something that we should do about these four categories? Understand, believe, be, and do. All right? Is there something God wants me to understand here or learn? Parenthetically, I'm about to preach a whole sermon on prophecy and how it may or may not function in the 21st century church. And you're going to say, like, what was the application of that? I'm not sure that there is one right now because I'm not ready to say that what the continuationists say is prophecy is really prophecy. But I do want you to understand something. So I'm going to unfold the, the logical steps of understanding that I've come to about this and I want to share it with you. So it may just be understand. Secondly, believe. Is there something that you should trust, some way you should be trusting God or stepping out in faith, something like that? B, what kind of person should you be? Similar to his character statement, identical to his character statement. How, what kind of man or woman should you be in your heart? And then what should you do? That would be duty. Understand, believe, be, and do. Those are four applications. So let's close in prayer.